Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Science or the Psalms, A God Who Sees, Hears, and Acts. And it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 6th, 2008. A few weeks ago, Francis Collins spoke to a standing room only crowd here at Stanford University about his Christian faith. Way back on June 26, 2000, the medical geneticist Collins stood next to President Bill Clinton in the East Room of the White House. There they announced to the world that the Human Genome Project had completed a first draft of all 3.1 billion letters of the DNA code. As head of the project, Collins had managed over 2,000 scientists in 20 genome centers in six countries. More recently, in his new book, The Language of God, Collins remembers that day in the White House as a celebration of a stunning scientific achievement, but also as what he calls, quote, an occasion for worship, end quote. For Collins, rigorous science nourished a robust faith. But not everyone draws the same conclusions from the book of nature. In her book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, the eminent cell biologist Ursula Goodenough recalls a camping trip when she was about 20 years old. I quote, I found myself in a sleeping bag looking up into the crisp Colorado night. Before I could look around for Orion or the Big Dipper, I was overwhelmed with terror. The panic became so acute that I had to roll over and bury my face in my pillow. When I later encountered the famous quote from physicist Steven Weinberg, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless, I wallowed in its poignant nihilism. A bleak emptiness overtook me whenever I thought about what was really going on out in the cosmos or deep in the atom. Later in her book, Goodenough tries to sweeten this bitter apple by making a case for a sort of religious naturalism. Albert Einstein, who died in 1955, took something of a mediating position in appeal to cosmic awe. Einstein was irreligious in the sense that he spurned all religious institutions, he never attended worship services or prayed, rejected all theology such as miracles, the afterlife, or prayer, he didn't believe that God was in any sense personal, and he was a strict determinist. Nevertheless, Einstein thought of himself as religious in the sense of humility and awe at the mystery, rationality, and complexity of the cosmos. The eternal mystery of the world, said Einstein, is its comprehensibility. For Einstein, the mysterious book of nature betokens some superior intelligence. I believe in Spinoza's God, he wrote, who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists not in a God who concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings. 
Thus, Einstein repudiated those people whom he called, quote, the fanatical atheists, end quote, who tried to claim him for their cause. About a year before he died, he wrote in a letter that he understood himself to be, quote, a deeply religious unbeliever, end quote. Interestingly enough, the psalmist depicts something like what Ursula Goodenough experienced in her, on her camping trip. It's not an uncommon human experience. The psalmist describe what a Stanford professor once shared with me over lunch, how sometimes it feels like we don't even have a relationship with God. Job despaired that God hid his face from him. Others cry bitterly that God doesn't answer when they call, that he's stone deaf to their cries, that he stands far off from us, and that he even forgets us due to some sort of divine amnesia. The Psalms also describe something like Einstein's awe, as when they affirm in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. But the psalm must go far, far beyond Goodenough's despair or Einstein's awe. They make the stupendous claim that this transcendent God who flung the 100 billion galaxies into space, each with 100 billion stars, is like an attentive mother or a tender father who cares for each and every human being. Despite feelings to the contrary, he hears our every cry for help. He intervenes to act for our good. Such is the psalm for this week, Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And so the psalmist affirms precisely what Einstein denied, that God speaks and acts, that he loves and he listens, that he knows my name and will act on my behalf. When I was in seminary, my classmate Phil coined a word for the sort of religious faith that has a firm and unwavering belief in a tame and innocuous divinity. 
It's a sort of faith that doesn't expect that God will meddle in human affairs, that doesn't expect that he will intercede in your life, providentially guide human history, care for a loved one, heal the hurts we suffer, make something out of nothing, or that God will do the impossible. My classmate characterized this sort of tepid faith as so-called functional deism. In other words, functional deism never denies the existence or reality of God, but neither does it expect his decisive action in your personal affairs. Functional deism is more like the vague religious naturalism of Goodenough in Einstein rather than the vibrant faith of Francis Collins or the Psalms. Hagar, the Egyptian slave of Abraham and Sarah, once felt badly alone and abandoned. We read in Genesis 16 how Sarah was barren, and so she commanded Abraham to produce a child by Hagar. He consented, was successful, and Ishmael was born. But when Sarah treated Hagar harshly, the powerless and pregnant maid fled. In the tenderness of God, the angel of the Lord found her in the desert by a spring of water and promised her that God had, in fact, heard her cries for help and given heed to her affliction. Her son's name would always remind her of this her entire life, for Ishmael means God hears. Hagar worshipped Yahweh, saying, Thou art a God who sees me. And so she named the well there Ber Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. The psalmists remind us of what Hagar discovered, that God does see us and love us that regardless of how we might feel, he does hear our cries. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Psalm 116.1 He has not ultimately hidden his face from me. In the prophetic tradition, Isaiah is quite insistent, challenging Israel in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? And so, in the wake of Easter, and after Francis Collins' lecture at Stanford, I made a mental note to myself. The God of science is one thing. The God of the psalmists is quite another and with my seminary friend, I pray, Lord, save me from the tepid faith of functional deism. Just as you hear my voice, please let me hear yours. Science or the Psalms for Sunday, April 6th. For books this week, I review a book called Tokens of Trust. An Introduction to Christian Belief by Rowan Williams, 
Louisville, Westminster John Knox Press, 2007. 161 pages. In 1943, C.S. Lewis transcribed some talks he gave on the BBC radio into a book called Mere Christianity. What Lewis had in mind was to set forth not what any particular denomination believed, but the essence of faith common to nearly all Christians in all times and places. Since then, other writers have made similar efforts to distill the gospel. John Stott's Basic Christianity, 1961. The Heart of Christianity by Marcus Borg in 2004. And more recently, N.T. Wright's Simply Christian from the year 2006 all come to mind. The latest and one of the best efforts at explaining the basic tenets of the Christian faith comes from no less than the Welshman Rowan Williams. After lecturing at Cambridge University, at the remarkably young age of 36, Rowan Williams was appointed the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at the University of Oxford. In 2003, he became the Archbishop of Canterbury and thus the head of the 100 million member Anglican Church. Considered by many people to be one of the most important English-speaking theologians in the world today, Williams is also a noted poet. He speaks or reads eight languages. Suffice it to say that any book by Rowan Williams is a model of intellectual rigor, cultural relevance, biblical fidelity, and pastoral care. Tokens of Trust is an expanded version of a series of talks that Rowan Williams gave at Canterbury Cathedral before Easter in the year 2005. His text is written in an informal style and intended for a general readership. As he says in his introduction, he takes nothing for granted, for example, any knowledge of the Bible. The entire book has only 12 footnotes, although numerous references to poetry, history, film, and music in the text itself. To explain the basics of the faith, Williams follows the Apostles' Creed and, when needed to expand and expound, the Nicene Creed. His six chapters, then, take their cue from the Creed. Chapter 1, I believe in God the Father Almighty. 2, Maker of Heaven and Earth. 3. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Chapter 4. He suffered and was buried. In the third day, he rose again. Chapter 5. And I believe one Catholic and apostolic church. In chapter 6. I look for the resurrection of the dead. In addition, the book includes numerous illustrations by the painter David Jones along with other photographs from around the world. Williams skillfully avoids the perennial temptation of theologians to say either too much or too little. He's as confident and bold in his own faith as he is in acknowledging honest questions and profound mysteries. His method draws on his own Anglican tradition to synthesize what we learn from scripture, church historical tradition, reason, in human experience, 
about a God who was characterized by unconditionally generous love and who invites us to trust our lives to him. Rowan Williams, Tokens of Trust, an Introduction to Christian Belief. For film this week, I review a German film called Into Great Silence from the year 2005. In 1984, filmmaker Philip Gronig asked the remote and reclusive monastery Grand Chartreuse if he could make a documentary of their monastic life. It's too soon they said, maybe in 10 to 13 years. In 2001, they called him back and said they were ready. And so Gronig spent six months by himself filming the everyday life of the Carthusian monks, founded in 1084, high in the French Alps. He begins in winter and ends in spring, which makes the stunning scenery reason enough to watch this film. There's no narration whatsoever, no music at all in this film. For the most part, no sounds at all, except for the echoes of daily tasks like pouring a pitcher of water, chirping birds outside the window, bells, cutting a piece of cloth with shears, and so on. Even the short snippets of the monks chanting the liturgy are exceptions to the silence. This is a life full of paradox, austere yet rich, silent but resonate, simple in the extreme and yet complex, alone in a cell but together in community, Useless by the words world's standard, but meaningful if ever there was meaning. The film is very long at 162 minutes, and more of a meditation than a documentary on what monastic life was likely like 900 years ago. Into Great Silence, from the year 2005. And finally, for poetry, we continue a series of poems by the Christian scholar and poet Prudentius. Prudentius lived from 348 to 413. The title of the poem by Prudentius this week is Servant of God, Remember. Servant of God, remember the stream thy soul be doing the grace that came upon thee, anointing and renewing. When kindly slumber calls thee, upon thy bed reclining, trace thou the cross of Jesus, thy heart and forehead signing. The cross dissolves the darkness and drives away temptation. It calms the wavering spirit by quiet consecration. Be gone, be gone the terrors 
of vague and formless dreaming. Begone, thou fell deceiver, with all thy boasted scheming. Begone, thou crooked serpent, who twisting and pursuing, by fraud and lie preparest the simple soul's undoing. Tremble, for Christ is near us. Depart, for here he dwelleth. In this the sign thou knowest, thy strong battalions quelleth. Then while the weary body, its rest and sleep is nearing, the heart will muse in silence on Christ in his appearing. To God, eternal Father, to Christ our King be glory, and to the Holy Spirit in never-ending story. Prudentius, servant of God, remember. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 6th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.